Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning and welcome to today's Canadian Apartment Properties Conference Call. My name is Bailey and I will be your moderator for today's call. All lines will be muted during the presentation portion of the call with an opportunity for questions and answers at the end. If you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by one on your telephone keypad. I would now like to pass the conference over to our host, David Mills. David, please go ahead. Thank you, Operator. Hardly the host, but uh, before we begin, let me remind everyone that the following discussion may include comments that constitute forward-looking statements about expected future events, and the financial and operating results of CapRe. Our actual results may differ materially from these forward-looking statements, as such statements are subject to certain risks and uncertainties. Discussions concerning these risk factors, the forward-looking statements, and the factors and assumptions on which they are based can be found in CapRe's regulatory filings, including our annual information annual information form at MDNA, which can be obtained at CDAR.com. And I'll turn things over to Mr. Mark Kenny, President and CEO. Thanks, David. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Scott Cryer, our Chief Financial Officer, is also with me this morning. While we are pleased with our performance in the fourth quarter, we did experience certain increased costs that led to a smaller than expected increase to our quarterly NFFO. The key change was an acceleration of repair and maintenance costs in the quarter as we started to play catch up after two years of reduced spending due to COVID related restrictions on our property activities. And increasing expense, interest expense on the acceleration of CMHC mortgage amortization NFFO per unit was impacted by the 1.8% increase in the number of units outstanding in the quarter. The unexpected increase in Omicron caseloads across the country also led to increased uncertainty in some of our markets. However, we believe we are now working our way through this situation. Having said this, revenues were up almost 7% driven by the contribution from our acquisitions increased monthly rents, and continuing high occupancies, driving a 3% increase in our NOI. Turning to slide five, we booked another solid year in 2021. All of our key benchmarks were up, including revenues, NOI, and NFFO, and we continued to generate solid and accretive growth for our unit holders. It is also important to note that we have experienced very few collection issues through the pandemic. To date, we have collected over 99% of our rents as we work with our residents to understand their issues and ensure we collect on a timely basis. Our payout ratio remains stable despite the significant 5% increase in monthly cash distributions last September. Our strong performance through the pandemic allowed us to increase our distributions while maintaining a very conservative payout ratio. Looking ahead, we expect to see further increases in occupancies, accelerated growth, and much improved operating performance as we work our way out of the Omicron pandemic and gradually return 
to more normal markets and operations. From an operating perspective, our ability to generate solid performance in both good and bad times is clearly demonstrated by the results from our stabilized portfolio. As you can see on slide six, occupancy has improved again in the fourth quarter, while net average monthly rents continue to increase. Our leasing and marketing programs continue to generate increasing occupancies as you can see on slide seven. After two years of operating under significant pandemic restrictions, our occupancy has remained highly stable, rising to over 98% at year end. You can also see that our bad debts as a percentage of total revenues have remained low throughout the pandemic. While we did experience some issues with our commercial portfolio last year due to the pandemic, the residential portfolio continues to track its historic low level of bad debt. A key factor in our ability to generate solid returns during the pandemic is the solid increase in rents on turnover we are achieving, as shown on slide eight. Clearly, turnovers continue to be impacted by the ability of residents to move or personally visit our properties. However, an almost 6% increase on turnover in the Canadian portfolio is a solid result, with rent increases moving, slight, moving higher sequentially through each quarter in 2021. It is also important to note that our churn is increasing up to 22% from 19% last year, a good sign that we should see more mark-to-market rent increases in the quarters ahead. Our increasing churn rate up significantly from pre-pandemic periods speaks well for our ability to achieve higher mark-to-market rent increases going forward. Renewals continue to be affected by the rent increase freezes legislated in Ontario, British Columbia, and other regions. But looking ahead, we are pleased to see Ontario's 2022 guideline increase of 1.2% and 1.5% in British Columbia. CAPREs has served uh, notice to over 45% of Canadian tenants across the weighted average rental increase was 1.3% effective January 1, 2022, capturing a full year of increased income. As of year end, Ontario and BC represented approximately 56% of our total NOI. Nova Scotia has capped rent decreases at 2% for apartments and 1% for MHCs in 2022. And we will be monitoring how we can implement these increases through 2022. As mentioned, we experienced a solid and positive trend in rent increases on turnover each quarter since we bottomed out at the height of the pandemic in Q1 uh, last year, as shown on slide nine. With churn also rising beyond pre-pandemic levels, the lower turnover numbers in Q4 is normal. As you can see in the past, few families want to relocate during the holiday season. Looking ahead, we are experiencing more in-person and online visits and expect we will start to see more higher mark-to-market increases in the quarters ahead, moving us towards the higher levels of increase we generated prior to when the pandemic set in. Through most of the last two years, our ability to invest in our properties was also significantly curtailed 
by the pandemic and our focus on conserving cash. Through the latter months of 2021, we ramped up our efforts to further enhance the value and income producing potential of our property portfolio. As you can see on slide 10, we targeted in-suite and common area improvements last year, ensuring our properties remain the most attractive in our markets and provide residents with safe and comfortable homes. Our investments in energy saving initiatives is also reducing costs and helping us improve our environmental footprint, a key goal of our ESG program. All of these key investments serve to increase NOI more quickly compared to other investment categories. Turning to slide 11, we continue to increase the size and scale of our property portfolio. Through 2021, we acquired 3,744 suites and sites, the majority in our key GTA and BC markets. Our acquisition pipeline remains strong and robust, and despite cap rate compression, we expect to generate further accretive growth portfolio in the quarters ahead. We also sold 593 non-core suites for $143 million, the majority in the GTA, we are where we are achieving very strong returns selling to experienced property developers wanting to develop downtown locations. We continue to evaluate our total portfolio to assess whether recycling certain capital will contribute to more accretive growth. I'll now turn things over to Scott for his financial review. Thanks, Mark, and good morning. As you can see on slide 13, our balance sheet and financial position remains strong and flexible at year end, with a conservative debt to gross book value and continuing high liquidity. Our $1.2 billion in Canadian unencumbered properties, which includes $615 million of MHC property, provide additional liquidity should it be needed to grow. In addition, we had $458 million available in cash and on our credit facility at year-end. Looking at our financings last year, we locked in a very low interest rate of under 2.2% on our refinancings and top-ups in 2021 and extended our term to maturity. We expect to finance a total of $1.1 billion in mortgages and top-ups in 2022. Importantly, at year-end, over 99% of our mortgage portfolio incurs a fixed interest rate, protecting us from potential future interest rate increases. In total, if we were to access all these sources of capital, we have available liquidity of approximately $1.2 billion at year-end, and even if utilized, our leverage ratio would still remain a very conservative 40%. We were also pleased to see another significant increase in the fair value of our property portfolio, increasing by just over $1 billion in 2021, following a $596 million increase in 2020. As you can see on slide 14, we have capitalized on the low interest rate environment over the last few years, reducing interest costs in Canada and extending the term to maturity. The ability to capture strong spreads and low interest costs in the Netherlands is also contributing to our overall lower interest costs and extending the term. And as I mentioned, over 99% of our mortgage portfolio incurs a fixed interest rate. 
We continue to monitor the interest rate environment for any opportunities to prepay mortgages and to hedge against rising interest rates. As of today, we have locked approximately 35% of our 2022 maturing mortgages at a 2.9% interest rate, mitigating against the expected rise in interest rates throughout the year. By April of this year, we will have locked close to 60% of our total mortgage portfolio over the last two and a quarter years at an average rate of 2.34% and a nine-year term. Further to our strong and flexible financial position, looking back over the last few years, you can see our, on slide 15 that we have met our goal of maintaining very conservative debt and coverage ratios, even through the pandemic. This conservative approach underpins the stability and resiliency of our business and the stability of our monthly cash distributions to unit holders. This focus on maintaining one of the strongest balance sheets in our business will continue going forward. Our mortgage portfolio remains well balanced as shown on slide 16. As you can see, in any year, no more than 15% of the total mortgages come due, thereby reducing risk in a rising interest rate environment. Looking ahead, our current ability to top up renewing mortgages through 2036 will provide further significant liquidity in the event this pandemic lasts longer than we hope. You can also see that we have many uh, opportunities to reduce our long-term interest costs. The current five and 10-year estimates rate of approximately 2.6 to 3.1 are below expiring mortgage rates of between 2.6 and 3.4 over the next three or four years. We also believe we're in a strong position despite forecasts for interest rate increases this year and going forward. I'll turn things back to Mark to wrap up. Thanks, Scott. At CAPRI, we are committed to fully integrated strategy to enhance our environmental, social, and government performance. These initiatives contribute to our mission to be the best place to work live and invest. Our ESG objectives, as outlined on slide 18, reflect our understanding the evolving global market has introduced new risk factors and opportunities for value creation. Our integrated ESG strategy helps us proactively address these risks. Our investments extend beyond managing our buildings to include the people we employ, the residents we house, and the suppliers we engage and the communities in which we operate. Through these strategic alignments, we believe we will generate enhanced returns for our unit holders while making meaningful contribution to our communities and the environment. Our ESG objectives continue to evolve and undergo constant review and assessment, all integrated with our operating plans, assuring we achieve the highest levels of ESG benchmarks over time. A key initiative is our comprehensive ESG checklist that we use to evaluate potential acquisitions, as detailed on slide 19. All opportunities are evaluated on current and potential risk factors related to environmental performance, including energy consumption and our ability to implement sweep metering, energy efficient lighting, water usage, waste, recycling programs, among other factors. We also examine ways we can enhance resident engagement 
and resident safety systems. In addition, we look at working conditions within the property in line with our goal to attract and retain the best people in our business. All of these criteria are aimed at linking our ESG goals to creating increased value for our unit holders. In 2021, we achieved a number of key accomplishments as outlined on slide 20, a testament to our commitment to our ESG strategies. Once again, for the eighth year running, we were ranked in the top tier of the best employers in Canada with a very strong score on diversity and employee engagement. Late in the year, we received a BOMA Award for innovation, reflecting our goal to enhance the value of our asset base. We received, we received the award for Habitat, our state-of-the-art property-wide building automation systems that result in enhanced comfort for our residents while conserving energy, lowering operating costs, and driving sustainability. We are also proud the drivers, the, the, my apologies, the diverse nature of our employee base, including by gender and ethnic background, reflects our markets and the overall Canadian population. This commitment to diversity helps us understand and address issues and concerns among our communities and our resident base. We are excited to issue our next ESG report in May, outlining all of our successes over last year. Looking ahead, we see a number of very positive value drivers that we are confident will generate strong and growing returns for our unit holders over both the short and the long term. We will continue to focus on our proven asset allocation strategy as detailed on slide 22. We primarily target value-add apartment properties in the mid-tier segment in well-located suburban markets in and around Canada's three largest cities, Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal. We are acquiring these property, properties at under 50% of replacement cost and have proven our ability to invest in them to increase value. Cash flows remain strong and highly stable due to the very affordable rent levels. Our second focus is the Canadian MHC sector. Revenues are highly stable and with residents owning their own homes, capital requirements and maintenance needs are significantly reduced. With home ownership costs rising across the country, MHCs provide a real alternative as prices have not appreciated to the same extent. Our third focus is on Europe. As one of the only professionally managed operating platforms in Europe, the opportunities for enhanced value are significant. As you know, our investment management agreement with IRES terminated on January the 31st. While we are losing the fees from IRES, it frees up management and operations time and resources to focus more on our European platform, where we believe we have a much larger opportunity to grow. Key to our growth in the coming months will be our ability to capitalize on a number of market trends as we return to pre-pandemic conditions. Demand for our quality properties will grow as immigration accelerates with new Canadians seeking affordable homes in our largest urban markets. The return of international students will also contribute to increased demand. The pandemic generated what we call household consolidation as students and young people returned home 
to save costs and to stay safe. We see these young people moving back to rental accommodations as offices reopen and in-class learning returns. Demographics are also on our side as the growing seniors population looks to the rental market to meet their needs. We believe our quality, well-located properties offering more space on one floor at affordable rents will see increased demand by seniors looking to capitalize on the significant equity they have found in their homes. We also see families looking to quality rental accommodations as highly affordable alternative to the increasing cost of home ownership. Additionally, cash flows will increase as we prudently and responsibly increase rents. Finally, our ongoing property investments, as outlined on slide 24, are reducing costs through energy saving and other initiatives, enhancing resident safety and making our properties more attractive. Our technology solutions are increasing our operating efficiency, helping us to meet our ESG commitment to enhanced environmental performance. All of these investments are generating strong increases in our net asset value. As Scott mentioned, we recorded an over $1 billion gain in our net asset value following a $596 million gain in the year prior. With increasing demand and little new supply of rental properties, we believe the value of our asset base will only grow forward going forward and provide another strong driver for unit holder value over the long term. In summary, we remain very excited about our future. Our focus on the mid-tier sector meets increased demand for affordable, high-quality homes. Our predominantly suburban locations outside of downtown cores and our larger size suites are meeting the need for more space. We are experiencing a strong pipeline of accretive acquisition opportunities and expect to see solid portfolio growth in the quarters ahead. Our industry-leading balance sheet, leverage, and liquidity position provide stability and the ability to grow going forward. With demographic trends and increasing immigration, we are confident we will see uh, to drive value for our unit holders in the years ahead. In closing, I want to once again thank everyone at Capri for their hard work and dedication over the last two years. These have been very, very difficult two-year period, but our experienced, engaged, and dedicated team has risen to the challenge. I also want to thank our residents, for their patience during these challenging times. Looking ahead, we are confident we will gradually return to more normal market conditions and continue our 25-year track record of growth, strong operating performance, and delivering enhanced value to our unit holders. Thank you for your time this morning, and we would now be pleased to take any questions that you may have. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by one on your telephone keypad. If for any reason you would like to remove that question, then please press star followed by two. Again, to ask a question, that is star one. As a reminder, if you are using a speakerphone, please remember to pick up your handset before asking your question. Our first question today comes from Jonathan Kelcher from TD Securities. Jonathan, please go ahead. Your line is open. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Morning, Jonathan. Morning. Um, first question, just on, on the operating costs, uh, Mark, I guess you said that 
it, there was some deferred um, deferred R and M in there. Have have you guys have you largely caught up? Is, does Q4 catch you up, or is there more more of that that we'll see in 2022? I, I would say we've largely caught up. Like the Q4 really was what we would describe as the return to normal quarter. You know, looking back, Omicron really started showing up for all of us and around the 15th of December, as I remember. So in the months leading up to that, residents were getting a lot more comfortable with inviting us into their apartments to do work. Um, safety concerns were, you know, fading. We forget all this now because we're back in it again. But I think the, the short answer to that, Jonathan, is yes, we did significant catch-up in Q4. But every time we go through a shutdown period, we're seeing this effect of, of people being concerned about us going into their homes and then letting us back in again. So the propensity to put a work order in the portal goes down when there's fears of, uh, of the virus out there. Okay, that's, uh, that's helpful. Um, and your, the one, one chart did show that um, you are starting to get see increases on, on turnover. Do you think that gets back to 2019 levels over the, over the course of 2022? I think the, the fundamentals are stronger. You know, we've had uh, record immigration. Um, we've had record price house uh, valuation increases. And we've got increased churn. So with all of those things uh, working in our favor, it's just a matter of catching the momentum. Like, we're on the momentum now. The reality is... Um, Timing-wise, for Omicron to show up in the middle of December was, was good. <laughs> it's not a big churn quarter for us in Q1. People aren't generally moving into a new apartment January 1. Um, those rentals had already been done anyway, and February were, had essentially been done. So we've not seen really an impact on revenue at all. The revenue story continues to, to be a strong one. And uh, I think as restrictions get lifted here, um, we'll just see what we've seen each time, uh, like another wave of demand. Okay, and then just last one for me, it, it, I see that the, the bad, you showed bad debt jumped a little bit in, in Q4 after sort of trending down. I mean, maybe, I think you might have addressed this with commercial uh, properties. Could maybe give us a little bit of color on that? Yeah, it, it was it was the jump itself was was really related to commercial um, a commercial tenants specifically. Um, so we're uh, you know we're not we're not seeing any major trend negatively that way. Um, I think uh, it, it, it's pretty much in line uh, for the quarter. Okay, thanks. I'll uh, I'll turn it back. Thanks. Thank you, Jonathan. The next question today comes from Matt Cormack from National Bank Financial. Matt, please go ahead. Your line is now open. Hi, guys. Um, on the margin front, so, so it, it, given your commentary, should we expect, I guess, then uh, R&M to come down in Q1 and then maybe see a bit of a catch-up again in Q2? And then maybe more broadly on expenses and inflation, you seem to be doing pretty well on property taxes and utilities. Um, but should, how should we think of kind of overall uh, NOI margins going forward? Well, uh, Q1, uh, 
the effect of um, the weather, I'm going to say, has been difficult. We've had record snow across the country. Um, it will be, uh, we've got to be uh, clear in our direction on the difference between inflation and cost flips. Like we talked about the catch-up effect for repairs and maintenance. We've now got a, a difficult weather quarter, no doubt, in front of us. We're just into it, but we've already seen the effects of snow removal and we've seen some other effects of um, just weather-related expense. That's not a trend. It's an unfortunate back-to-back -back, uh, um, event. I think on the inflation front, we're okay. Uh, wages is where we've got to be mindful. We've got a lot of frontline worker staff and we've tried to address um, their needs. On the margin expansion front overall though, Matt, you know, without stating the obvious, as our revenue story improves and the story is getting better and better each quarter and incentive initiation falls off, which it is, the, the way, as you, you know, we track our incentives or book them is amortized over a one-year period after initiation. So the real question is, incentive initiation is on the decline. Occupancy is uh, strengthening, even though we're at almost record levels. Mark-to-market rents are following that path back to double digits very quickly. And all of those revenue lines will naturally um, assist margins. So. It's, it's, uh, I'm not trying to be coy, I'm trying to navigate the effect of the pandemic um, as we come out of it. If, if we really are back to normal um, in March, then I would expect to see a very strong Q2. If there's a delayed effect of the virus, it puts a little bit more risk in the system. I don't know if that does it for you or not, but basically the revenue story is, is opening up again and the expense uh, story is um, is uh, not inflationary driven for us. Fair enough, mitigated to some extent. Um, and then on uh, with this weird kind of end to the moratorium on uh, rent increases, are you now going to have forty percent of your portfolio in maturing in January at least for the near term or how does that work in terms of rent increases? Well, well yeah, I think we've got the effect, we've got that old Quebec province effect for Ontario and BC now. Like it'll stick with us for years and years. You know, assuming you don't have vacancy periods to reset renewal dates, we've got a new renewal date of January 1, yeah. which makes modeling a little more easy and predictable, I guess. But um, yeah, the only thing that moves uh, an anniversary date now is a uh, vacancy that is prolonged and where a new, a new tenant initiates a lease outside of January. Otherwise, I, I predict it'll be with us for a decade, at least. Oh. It's an odd time. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, okay, fair enough. <laughs> and then uh, last one for me on the accounting side for IRS, outside of the management fee side of things, is there any change in the way, um, just the recognition of maybe FFO versus dividends or, or how we should think of that from uh, an operating standpoint in the income statement? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, we're finalizing our assessment on this, but with the loss of the management contract, we, we will, will likely move to a point where we just, um, you know, it's fair value uh, as opposed to equity-based uh, accounting. So um, there will be a, 
there, there will be a change in, in that in that in that basis. Okay, but it, it shouldn't be hugely material at the end of the day to, to FFO figures. Should it hurt my missing something there? No, it, it, it shouldn't. They they have a high high payout ratio of their income, etc. So um, okay. it should be very in line. Makes sense. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Matt. The next question today comes from Joanne Chen from BMO Capital Markets. Joanne, please go ahead. Your line is now open. Okay. Uh, good morning, guys. Um, good morning. Maybe just following up on the kind of the turnover activity. Um, how do you think it's going to trend uh, through 2022? And I know you did talk um, about you know the mark-to-market uh, opportunity, but could you perhaps provide some color on? Um, you did. I think you did mention briefly double digits, but could you maybe comment by market within your portfolio where you're seeing the most uh, strength? Yeah. So I mean, kind of trending through Q4, um, we saw actually the strongest uh, in December was in the Halifax market, um, and I believe it was 13 or 14 percent. So that was the, the strongest overall. Um, Followed by Ontario, uh, and then and then BC, uh, Montreal. We still have some work to uh, really get those up, and I think July will be kind of a kickoff with uh, with rental increases in general and 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 some some new leasing. Um, so those are kind of by market. You know, we're we're looking at double digits definitely uh, nationally, kind of coming through to today effectively. Um, so. You know that that's the general trend. It's been it's been pretty. It, it, the graph in our in our conference call kind of shows it pretty clearly. It's almost a straight uh, arrow upwards right now. And, and Mark said we think that'll only only continue with some of the with the housing crisis we're in and immigration. Um, you know, returning and students, um, foreign students returning and the deconsolidation of households. So we 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 think there's just a ton of firepower behind that uh, that market rental growth rate. Okay. Yeah, I was going to add to what Scott said is the, on the household consolidation, this is a real Canadian made in Canada effect that they have not seen in the U.S. You know, we hold the belief that culturally under 30s, they live within an hour of mom and dad, and, and that lent itself to to that under 30 cohort going home during the pandemic if they were renting they just went home with restrictions in the cities there wasn't much of a city lifestyle and with with workplaces shut down work from home was possible so i really we we all feel very strongly you know different than the u.s where if you're you know you're from houston you work in seattle and it's very very different cultural situation with where people live and follow their careers but we feel extremely strongly that when workplaces start to get comfortable with uh, back to work, this, this is going to have a big effect. There is still a big cohort of under 30s that are at home. And like we said throughout the pandemic, like I don't believe it's a permanent effect. I don't believe under 30s are going to you know, live out the retirement with mom and dad. But, but we do know anecdotally it's, it's, it's prevalent in Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. These are the places where it happens. So, so we, we see that effect as uh, as back to work um, um, thoughts start to change. 
Right. No, that's for sure. Um, maybe just, uh, I guess, on you commented on each of your markets. I guess um, it seems like this quarter there's a little bit more. You know, Atlanta, Canada continues to hold up quite well, but there seems to be a little bit of softness in Quebec and um, BC. Could you comment on whether it's just kind of more because of uh, on the expense side of things? Or are you seeing any other trends um, in, in Quebec that's different than the other? Well, not, not to like our portfolio, not to generalize Quebec, but our portfolio, our Montreal downtown core portfolio, is highly reliant on foreign students. You know, you've got this got multiple, you've got the University of Montreal, you've got McGill, you've got Concordia, you've got, you know, the Polytechnic uh, College. You've got all of this happening in the core. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, these are world-known schools and attract a tremendous number of foreign students. So our, our Montreal experience um, in the core was uh, really affected by the foreign student market. Um, in, every market's a little bit nuanced. In, in BC, it's probably more of that under 30 at home uh, phenomenon. But weakness everywhere was, was really focused on the under 30s going home or foreign students not being here. You could just call it one cohort of effect. If you have mobility and you were in rental, you had the optionality of giving notice and going home. And, and that's the household right. consolidation point that Scott was talking about. Yeah, Quebec got hit, you know, by a couple of things. That was probably one of our higher areas of incentive um, throughout the year and, and it continues to be um, in, in through Q4 as far as granting of incentives, um, uh, you know, and then similar to some of the other regions, you know, R&M, utility costs, et cetera, um, and, and a little bit higher vacancy. So it was just, it was a culmination of a bunch of factors um, specific to Quebec. But, you know, Scott, Scott talks about incentives. Like, we're, we're very, very proud of how we manage the pandemic. And our Incentives are something that's not in Capri's history at all, but when you look at the total effect of incentive granting, it really equates, as God has said on a number of occasions, to about 1% of revenue. So really, in today's environment, we think of that as vacancy loss. Like, we, we mitigated vacancy loss through incentive use, and uh, it's not something we, we, we believe in, but under the circumstances, we, we had to embrace because others were also embracing incentive use. But it's important to highlight that that burn-off uh, effect is really about incentive initiation. And, and we've done a very, very good job, in my mind, of, of managing that prudently. And on the incentive front, December was the lowest month for incentive granting um, for the year. So we, we do see that burning off throughout 2022. So by the time we hit Q4, it should be, should be you know, much more insignificant. But it, it takes... It's a lagging effect on a revenue as opposed to vacancy, obviously, where, which comes back more immediately. It, it, it's been building is the problem. Like when we were using incentives, it was a slow build, and now it's a slow burn. So we, I think we've crested the top of the incentive initiation curve. Well, we have crested the right. top of it. Got it. Well, that's helpful. Um, I guess maybe just one more on, I guess, the expense side of things. I know obviously Q4, there was a lot of catch-up that you guys did. Um, but how should we think about the run rate, I guess, um, through 2022, given, you know, the current inflationary environment? 
you know, we never do this. It's, we're not as impacted by inflation as, as our numbers may, may suggest. Again, I, we, we are looking at a difficult January with, with weather-related expense across the country. Um, but it's not, it's not inflationary driven. It'll be very, it's unfortunate that it backs onto that catch-up quarter, but it's, uh, it's not inflationary pressure. We have, we have uh, inflationary pressure on the wage front, and, uh, but dollar-wise, it's our frontline workers that we've had to address. So from a quantum of dollars, it's not significant from a percentage of uh, increase it is, but from a dollar effect, that's where it is, but we don't view that as material. We view the revenue catch-up and overachievement due to higher churn to be what, what gets us through those, those inflationary pressures. And not, like on the natural gas front, we've hedged 85% of our 2022 consumption. Uh, we see a lot of electricity costs are passed on through a sub-metering process. So it's more around consumption and rate, we believe, um, from where we are today. Insurance, we're getting indications that those sh that should be a more positive story uh, for 2022, uh, we renew in March, um, than, than the larger increase we saw kind of this year. So um, there's some, some, hopefully some good news on that front. Got it. Um, okay, maybe just one last quick one for me. I guess on the acquisition side, you guys obviously been keeping busy, but um, I guess could you maybe comment on which markets are you seeing the most attractive opportunities for you guys right now? Um, there has it's been a slow quarter for uh, new product launch for what the type of assets that were we identify as opportunities. We've got a couple of things in the scope right now, but um, it's also clear that the market um, still has an incredible appetite for apartments and uh, you know we continue to evaluate this position opportunities as well where we see um, value creation, significant value creation. There's a lot of assets Capri's held for many, many years that um, really are trading at unbelievably attractive valuations and um, we've got that whole you know, diversification, modernization strategy in mind. So, so we'll be looking at that as well. I would not call it material change, but, but definitely something we're excited about. Okay, no, that's very helpful. Thank you very much. I will turn it back. Thank you, Joanne. The next question today comes from Mario Sarek from Scotia Bank. Mario, please go ahead. Your line is now open. Hi, thank you. Good morning, guys. Um, Good morning. I, uh, I also want to come back to uh, the operating costs, and then I want to touch on uh, the large fair value being recorded during the quarter. Um, so just on the operating costs, you know, you're saying popping the wine came down 2% in this quarter. It would have been up 1% uh, if it wasn't for the other expenses category, uh, which was up 13% over year to $40 million. Uh, Mark, you mentioned kind of a, a recovery in, in R&M spend, but uh, you know, can you provide us with a bit more granularity on the breakdown of about $40 million of other expenses this quarter, like between R&M and insurance and anything else? Uh, uh, that would be helpful. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you yeah, I mean, 
the majority of that would be R&M. I think, you know, through the year, I think we had about a 20% increase in insurance. Um, but, uh, you know, either direct wages or, or wages through, you know, subcontracted programs were, uh, uh, it, it, was, it was largely driven by, by, you know, the increase in RN and, and a little bit of inflation in the, in the wage side. But, um, yeah. Okay. Those, those so, the 40 million. That was the real key driver, yeah. So, of the 40 million, say like 70% or 80% plus would be RN expense or, or more. Yeah, yeah. That's a reasonable estimate. Okay, so then the uh, the commentary on uh, kind of the catch up. If it was forty million in Q4, it was up thirteen percent year over year. So the fair to say that in Q4 of twenty two, that forty million is ten percent lower than it was this year, kind of thing. Does that sound reasonable? I I I see. Yeah, <laughs> got choppy run rates going on with the pandemic. Like so. Uh, I'd hate to put 10% on it, but that seems reasonable on the surface, Mario. Uh, it's the catch-up. Like, if we have a stabilized go-forward from here in terms of, uh, you know, apartment entry, then, yeah, I think that would be more than conservative. If we have another surge, <laughs> obviously in Q2 and, and Q3, then, then you can see a drop-off followed by uh, another, another increase. So... Yeah, it's, it's, that's a reasonable assumption. It's all pandemic-related, sadly. It's not just the normal operating business. There's clearly a start-stop effect with the pandemic. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so then just shifting focus to the uh, to large fair value gain, like, I think the one thing that struck me uh, with the quarter is, is the same property and why declined during the quarter, which, which you've explained, and then the pre-significant fair value gain that was taken, most of that was due to higher NOI, not cap rate, which was particularly interesting. So yeah. I think maybe a two-part question. Um, what happened in Q4 that drove kind of the cumulative fair value gain year-to-date from higher NOI up to $417 million versus just $27 million year-to-date in Q3? Yeah, I mean, first of all, we, we obviously do our full valuation process with our third-party appraiser in um, Q4. Uh, historically, if you look at the last five years, most of our increases come in that final stage. We're obviously cautious through the quarters to bump too, too fast. Um, and then you have the pandemic effect through different quarters as well. Um, so that, that's the reason it generally comes in Q4, and there were a lot of transactions also to support those gains. Um, the NOI side, Really, obviously, 2020, the assumptions with 0% increases in, in BC and Ontario um, and, you know, really lower mark-to-market rents, um, you know, were, were apparent in, in our valuations in 2020 and, like, through the first half of the year. With, you know, the announcement of the BC and Ontario renewal rates, you know, which come into effect Jan 1, had a very large impact on our stabilized 2022 um, NOI, um, and then you know again as we as we saw through October, November, December, we saw a, a real ramp up in in the mark to market of rents. Um, we have budgeted increases in R and M, so there is some inflationary pressure built in to our valuations because um, we, we we use our budget numbers to a large degree. 
Um, but really, it's, it's, it's really that top line change, uh, a combination of vacancy, drop off of bad debt, um, you know, TIs don't come into play as much uh, from a valuation point of view. So it, it was really a top, top line story um, with the momentum in Q4. If, if you look at the trend through 2021, um, we hit, you know, a, a cumulative low of vacancy or higher vacancy, so um, and and bad debt and uh, etc. Um, in June, and so as we've come into the December months, all of those figures have really improved and, and built out a very strong um, stabilized NOI for 2022 from a valuation point of view. Mario, I think it's appropriate if I could add something on the valuation front. Uh, that we don't talk about a lot. You know, all of the apartment REITs in Canada who value income make up an incredibly small percentage of the ownership pool. And, you know, we calculated less than 5% of the ownership pool for rental. So when you look at all sectors of real estate, the apartment sector in the public domain uh, owns the, the smallest slice of the pie. Okay, compared to office, compared to industrial, compared to list goes on, whatever. And and so what we're seeing in the market are valuations that are not based on income. In fact, the counterintuitive uh, thing happened during the pandemic. Apartments with large vacancy rates were commanding the highest valuations because the private market sees it as a re as a revenue opportunity and isn't doesn't really run its business quarter to quarter like a lot of the REITs do. So, well, we don't run it that way, but they just take a different view. And, and the other factor that has nothing to do with income is this replacement cost thing we keep talking about. So the private market says, my goodness, I can buy stable income at less than 50% of replacement cost. Um, there's value in that. So, so I think on the valuation front, it's something that we don't talk about a lot. We are a very, very different sector of real estate to our other uh, sector peers. And, and the valuation is really got, over the last five years I've seen it, so much less to do with, with actual income and so much more to do with, with uh, NAV. Um, Mark, just maybe one follow-up on, on that. Uh, it's an interesting point that you're making. We're seeing in the industrial space where, you know, whether whether buildings are occupied or, or vacant, it's the same valuation because of the conviction and being able to lease up the space at a at a very good rent. Uh, are you finding in the private market that uh, vacancy is still highly sought after, notwithstanding, let's say, some of the regulatory clear uncertainty uh, that exists for residential today? Like are people buying vacancy today aggressively? Uh, again, oddly, not as much today as a year ago. Um, however, it's also probably due to a lot, not a lot of products available today. So you had this um, uh, movement of private sector sales that really was peaking a year ago, and, and vacancy and income had nothing to do with it, nothing to do with valuation at all. Well, I shouldn't say nothing, but very, there was a surprising reaction in the acquisition market, as I said, where vacancy was, was seen as a positive. <laughs> where we run around and we're afraid of incentive use. The, the private sector kind of like 
doesn't even understand what we're talking about. So they, they, they really value the inherent asset. So the, the converse, I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but the conversation in the private market is more about price per unit than it is about, uh, you know, what's your income effect next quarter. Okay, uh, and then just last question coming back to Scott, perhaps on the, uh, on the fair value game, uh, and you may not have the information uh, handy, but like, what, what would you say is the ballpark gap in uh, in the valuation that you're using between the stabilized NOI that is embedded in the fair value, and then like your NOI that would have been in place on an LPM or NPM basis? So I'm trying to. Yeah, I mean, we might need to just take that offline, but are, are you kind of talking about what we're budgeted from a stabilized versus what we've seen in the last last 12 months? Yeah, because one, one of the challenges with the... Oh, sorry, one of the challenges with the fair value mechanism is that it's generally based off of stabilized NOI, which in some cases could be two, three years down the road as opposed to today. So I'm just trying to understand kind of what the, uh, what the gap between those two numbers maybe no realistically i mean we we run a 2022 value uh stabilized um for our valuations we we run rent rolls based on what we're seeing in the markets based on renewal rates that we know are in place um and that that's what i'm saying was was the was a huge driver um of the valuation increase through noi for 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 year end was the fact that we we do model one year forward stabilized so it's not we're not two and three years out. Um, like I know some other companies do that. Uh, we're we're basically a year forward. We're, we're quite conservative from that point of view. And um, given where our occupancy is at, where where we're seeing rental rates and and, and renewal rates at, we think the top line is pretty predictable um, from from that point of view. Yeah, like our our throughout the year process is based on income changes, but it's not forward looking. What Scott said, it's like in place income calculation, um, but the cap rate, <laughs> the market probably looks ahead, and that's what we were just talking about, the private market valuing vacancy loss. So when we do these year-end um, cap rate adjustments, that, that's when there's the, the catch-up effect. Mm -hmm. But the, the typical, um, we, we believe that cap rate has probably one of the most conservative valuation models out there. We have multiple uh, third parties, we, we vetted internally, and we typically lag um, what consensus NAV would be by, by, a, by a small margin. But we keep that robust system in place so that we're never overstating, really. Okay. But what's, what's exciting, though, and, and part of what some of our dispositions have revealed is, is this significant um, gap in cap rate um, uh, use depending on the attribute of the disposition. Mary, I'll just add, we do, especially during the pandemic, we, we use DCF models just to look at the short-term impact of bad debt and vacancy, which doesn't have a long-term real uh, large um, valuation impact. Obviously, um, if, you're, if you're not getting market rents and if you're, you're getting low renewal rates, that has a more of a lasting effect, but we do DCF as well as a, as a kind of check our heads against a, a, a direct cap method on a one-year forward stabilized basis. So, you know, when we look at Perdor and we look at a whole bunch of other, other things, but um, 
but, but we do we do we do look for it, but that's not our primary uh, basis for valuation. Yeah, all sounds pretty comprehensive. Okay, thanks, guys. Thank you, Mario. The next question today comes from Mike Marketis from Dejada. Mike, please go ahead. Your line is now open. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. A um, couple of quick ones just to begin. Scott, you said 85% uh, of your natural gas consumption was hedged. Can you remind us where the, the, the price level is versus uh, where you were for 2021? Um, I think the probably the... I think the metric I could give you, my recollection is gas prices are maybe, natural gas prices were kind of almost 30 to 50% higher. I think the mark to market on our, on our one year of, of, of natural gas uh, was somewhere in the 2 million range and for the three to four years, like 6.5 million. That was the last time I looked at it. I have been following that natural gas prices during the last two months, given how busy we are. But um, it, that was it was substantially higher um, by I would say close to 50% at one point. Sorry, so I just to make sure I understand you correctly. So the the mark to market, I get that's a favorable event just from having the edge in place. But in terms of the actual price level where you're fixed, how does that compare in 2022 to last year? Is that the 30 to 50% higher that you spoke of, or is that... Oh, sorry, the fixed rate? price is almost yeah. bang on the same, like, for the next three years. Uh, I thought we were talking about compared to spot market or forward market, um, which is, you know, I think it was between 30 and 50% higher than what we've hedged at. Where, where Scott, I guess, in summary, is saying there's not a significant 2022 effect over 2021. I think that's what you're right. getting at, Mike. Right? Exactly. Yep, that's exactly it. Got it. Okay, thanks for clarifying okay. that. Um, <laughs> just on the... Uh, just on the uh, on the property taxes, I mean, I know you guys don't have a, a significant presence there. Um, New Brunswick is seeing some hyperinflation. Are there any other regions where you're, you're kind of concerned about, or or are you generally feeling good about property taxes uh, over the next, I don't know, twelve to twenty-four months? Yeah, I, I, you know, we we work with advisors and whatnot. It doesn't seem to have any major pressure points. We saw a change in legislation in Alberta that's already hit us. Um, through 2021, um, we're not getting any indication of any major spikes, um, and, and of course, we'll continue to um, go back and uh, fight any major increases like we have for the last um, 15 years. Okay, thanks. And the uh, last one for me before I uh, turn it back, just um, Mark, you made some comments in your uh, Opening statements just with regards to reallocating the resources you have in terms of people from IRES to uh, focus on other uh, opportunities in Europe. So should we take that as a indication that um, you're you're not planning on repatriating any capital from Europe back into uh, back to Canada? No. And the resources, it's our, it's our Toronto head office resources that we had dedicated on the corporate side. Um, we have the eRes platform. Um, we're very excited about what's happening with eRes, and um, you know our efforts can be fully dedicated to the success of that platform. Got it. And uh, in terms of repatriating capital, there's no plans to bring any money back from Europe at this juncture. No. No. Okay. Excellent. Thanks very much. Thank you.
Thank you. The next question today comes from Jimmy Shan from RBC Capital Markets. Jimmy, please go ahead. Your line is now open. Uh, thanks. Hey, guys. Um, just on the turnover spread, uh, what, what is that tracking uh, so far in the year? Did, did you say it was double digit? Yeah, like nationally all in, um, I'm not getting too far ahead of myself. We, we kind of hit that 10%. Um, so, and again, I think, you know, the numbers are strongest in, in, in the uh, Halifax market, then the, the GTA and, and Ontario, and then and followed by BC. The, the uh, you know, okay. I'm like a broken record on this, Jimmy, and I'm not telling anything you don't know, but it's the revenue story is what's so strong. You know, increased churn alone, even with lower mark-to-market rents, can generate a better bottom line. Better mark-to-market rents is clearly the path that we're on quarter over quarter. There's no reason to suspect that if the under 30s that are at home come back to mandated work and immigration numbers continue the way they are, we should be seeing stronger than pre-pandemic mark-to-market rents. Our occupancy gains are, are, are already the first part to recover in our revenue story. That's the way we run the business. And incentive generation has crested and, and, and initiation of incentives is dropping. Bad debts stayed stable. That, it's all of it. The revenue story is quite strong. And, and you know, the trajectory of that story has been, as we said, gradual but predictable in an upward direction. It, it was the worst as Scott said, in June of, of last year. And, and the results in June weren't that bad, but it, it, there's always a bit of a lag effect. So we've got this you know, building momentum now on the revenue front, which has been you know, punched slightly in the Q4 by some operating expenses, hopefully not too weather-related in Q1, we'll see. And, but the story is very, very strong. Yep, yep. And, and on the uh, under 30 cohort, um, what percentage do they make up of your tenant base, roughly? Uh, they make up about 95% of our vacancy. I'm not kidding. The, the vacancy okay. was all the under 30 cohort. There was no exception. The, the suburbs got, got was un, unaffected, and there's not a building in Canada that I'm aware of that was impacted that didn't have the under 30 cohort. You can call them foreign students if you want. You can call them uh, students if you want, or you can call them uh, new workforce uh, city dwellers if you want. The reality is, and I picked 30, maybe it's 32, um, but that's the, that's, that's the entire effect of the pandemic. And that's why I, I was making this point. It's a cultural Canadian effect, okay? In the U.S., if you're 30 years old, it's not unusual to be working in Houston and mom and dad are in Seattle. In Canada, for whatever reason, we all know this, we live within an hour and a half of mom and dad, generally, and especially in the big cities. If you're from the east side of Toronto, I'm going to guess that your family is on the east side of Toronto. It's that, it's that specific. So, so when it comes to Canadian vacancy effect, it's a cultural phenomenon. And it's age cohort related 100% to the pandemic. Who works in downtown core? It's that cohort. That's why the downtown cores were affected. Where are the universities? Big city downtown cores. Yeah, that all makes sense. 
Uh, and then just quickly switching to on the policy side, um, in terms of your engagement on that front and advocating for the industry, I notice you're also pretty active on social media now. And so any update uh, if you're hearing, you're hearing on that front. Thank you for the mention. <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm one of the followers. <laughs> okay, um, thank you, Jimmy. Any, any, any update on that front, uh, federal or or the uh, Ontario level? No, li li listen, we're we're doing. I'm doing my best. My anyway, that's another story. But I'm doing my best to actually tell the affordable housing story. It's not. I'm not even telling the rental story. I'm telling the affordable housing story because it does not serve our industry well to have these run out of control home prices, okay? Nobody's attacking the homeowner for their property doubling in value in the last three years. And, and you know, I, I really do feel strongly about the fact that, you know, uh, immigration is wonderful. Of course we embrace immigration. We're all immigrants. However, you can't do that without housing policy. And, 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 and we, we sit here and wonder, why prices are runaway, and yes, it's not one-dimensional. Yes, there's, you know, a flooding of capital in the market that has driven prices. Yes, yes, yes to all of this stuff. But the reality is that for people to have affordable homes, there's never been an example in the history of the world ever where supply didn't help that problem. And, and we're way behind on this. So we've got the municipal level fighting development. We've got the federal level uh, pushing uh, more demand into the system, and we have the poor provinces trying to solve the problem, and they have the least impact. And, and the, at the end of the day, the rental sector is demonized, even though our, our, our rents are, are actually not doing anything compared to the larger housing market. So, you know, there's my speech. I'm not very, like I said, <laughs> I'm not sure too many people are interested in following Mark Kenny on Twitter, but, but that, that's the story we're trying to get out there. Tell me for the okay, but are you, yeah, but are you hearing it at the federal level, you know, um, anything that come out recently or discussions underway um, that you might be hearing or otherwise? Not, not really. I think that there's, you know, as of this morning, a preoccupation with other issues, but, but not really. You know, between the truckers and the, okay. and, the and, and what's happened in Europe over there, uh, that seems to be the attention, but I, I, we're doing our best to get the the message out on the need for more housing and and the need for government to address the affordable issue, especially in the context of immigration. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jimmy. There are currently no further questions registered. So I'd now like to hand back to Mr. Kenny for closing remarks. Please go ahead. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for their time today and in joining us. And uh, if you have any questions, please feel, re feel, please feel free to reach out to Scott or myself. Uh, wishing you all a uh, uh, nice day. Thank you. That concludes the Canadian Apartment Properties Conference call. You may now disconnect your line. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.